an exciting time to be here, and it's an exciting time to see what the Lord is doing here and to hear. Uh, I don't know. I've, I have been in a church before where I was on a search committee and where we went through some transitional times, and uh, it's challenging, and it's um, uncertain, and it's exciting, and it's, it's uniting, and it's all, all kinds of different things. And uh, I don't know, just hearing you guys talk, it, it really reminds me of what, um, what an amazing thing it can be when, when we come together and are faithful uh, to unite together with, with the Lord um, at the center of it all, with His grace just flooding over the whole process. So that's really, really, really cool. And yeah, I feel like I should just close this in prayer after that little, little presentation. Um, Mike, I was trying to do math. Where'd you go? Are you still in here? Vote. He stepped out. Well, never mind. I was gonna, I was gonna make fun of him, but I won't do that now. Um, I have uh, a pretty good amount of things to say this morning, and um, for the sake of time, I'm gonna try to kind of shorten that up. One of the things I'm gonna skip through. I had a. Uh, an introduction that I'd written out that I wanted to just share and say, good morning, and it's great to be here, and uh, I love you guys, and it's awesome to worship with you and all those things. That just for the sake of time, um, we'll, we'll breeze past that. But imagine, if you will, that I paid you many compliments, and you felt good about yourselves, and I included some jokes that were really funny, and uh, was just winning and charming and all those things, and then now that you're, now you're ready to hear what I have to say today. Um, so that's, that's what we'll pretend happened here. Uh, just real quickly, I got to do this kind of thing. I'm going to hold this. I got to do this kind of thing uh, a number of times back in my uh, 20s. Uh, never a ton, but enough that I got a little bit comfortable with it. It's been a long time since I've done something like this, though. And uh, I was telling Brian just this morning, I, was, I think I had forgotten how difficult it can be to, to try to put things together and uh, that sort of thing. So... Um, in the spirit of all the pretend kind things I said about you guys, uh, I would ask that you would be kind and gracious towards me as well, please, and thank you very much. Uh, if this is not as uh, polished or, or smooth as you're used to. Um, and just real quickly as well, some of this that I want to talk about today is, uh, I shared some of this at my sister's memorial service a few weeks ago, and if you were here, uh, you may or may not remember any of that, but um, that, that's going to make an appearance again. So with that in mind, let's dive right in and get to the, the meat and potatoes here. Years ago, I had a coworker who became a very good friend to me. He and I got along really well. Uh, we shared similar tastes in, in music and in humor, uh, and we particularly connected on religious matters. And we weren't uh, really from uh, the same background or the same tradition, uh, but that was kind of a good thing. Uh, so we could, we could discuss, and we could study together, and we could talk together, and we could pray together. And he and I became really good, I think, partners in faith. And, um, we grew together spiritually, and I recall one time he was helping lead uh, his, his Royal Rangers group at his church, and he was tasked that evening with giving a talk to these guys about what it means to be saved, and he was talking about it that afternoon, and he said, I don't really know what I'm, what I'm going to say, um, and, and he wasn't sure. He mentioned that even though he knew that he was saved, and he had a pretty good understanding of what that meant for him uh, and all that, he was having a hard time coming up with something that he could present to elementary age boys that, uh, that they could understand and that, that communicated some kind of real important truth. And out of the blue, he asked me, in my opinion, what really is salvation? And I remember being caught off guard and thinking, well, uh, I mean, I know what it is, right? I've, I, but how can I explain it? How can I put it in, a, in, in simple 
terms for an eight-year-old or something like that. And I probably overthought it, and I think I kind of talked in circles for a while about things like holiness and sin and atonement and sacrifice, forgiveness and restoration and all that. And I tried. I tried to come up with some kind of insight that was simple enough to understand, but that still kind of encapsulated the idea of being saved and why Christians believe it's, it's so necessary. And that's what I tried to do. I did not succeed. Uh, and somewhere around probably 30 seconds into my rambling answer, I think he probably regretted asking me about it at all. Now, none of that is that big of a deal. Uh, he figured out something to say eventually. I'm sure it went fine. He said it was good. Uh, the world kept on turning. No, not a big deal. But that memory stays with me even to this day, and that's been over a decade ago. It was an interaction that bothered me then, and that feeling stayed with me for some time. It was like, how could I not have a good, ready answer for so simple a question as, what is salvation? At the time, I considered myself maybe, maybe a person that uh, others could come to when they had questions like that, right? I wanted to be that guy. I had kind of tried to carve out a space to be that guy. So how could I not have a good answer for that? Isn't salvation the first thing that I experienced as a Christian? Isn't it what I'm supposedly trying to lead others to do? Isn't it near the top of the list of fundamental doctrine and truth in the life of a believer? Sure, of course. Now, this wasn't necessarily something that I lost sleep over, uh, necessarily, but it was never far from my mind. Basically, this thought was, wouldn't it be nice to be able to both have and give a clear understanding of what it means to be saved? Now, in fairness to me, some of that difficulty in defining it quickly was based on the fact that uh, I used to have a pretty easy definition of what it meant, and I, I probably could have rattled it off pretty fast, but over the years, I had come across maybe some passages in Scripture that didn't completely or comfortably fit into kind of this concept that I had. Um, and I really want to start out today by looking at that and asking the questions, what do we think salvation really is, and what does Scripture seem to think that it is? Now, I want to stop there for just a second and say this. Something I learned, kind of, I guess I learned, uh, in, in experiences uh, talking like this is not to cram too many things into one presentation or one package, and I'm probably doing that here today. So uh, uh, just bear with me. I will try to kind of breeze through this very quickly just to give us a, a, a base from which to work. I imagine many of us, excuse me, were given a pretty brief, uh, simplified definition of what salvation means, and it probably looked a lot like what I had in mind. But before we get to that, let's look quickly at what the New Testament seems to think salvation is. Now, I get the feeling that much of this is at least a little bit familiar. Uh, I think this is an idea that has been presented here before. Um, so I'm going to kind of breeze through it. Um, but at times, the New Testament writers seem to talk about salvation as something that had already happened to their readers, to Christians. Sure, perfect. Sounds great. They've been saved. Makes sense. At times, though, they seem to talk about salvation as something that was currently happening to their readers, to Christians. Okay, that doesn't quite fit maybe what I had in mind. At other times, they seem to talk about it as something that was going to happen to their Christian readers. And that didn't make any sense at all. How could Paul or Peter or whomever be writing to a group of Christians, of believers, and say to them, uh, you guys have yet to be saved? Uh, none of that added up with kind of the notion that I had. Eventually, though, I came across this, as I think some of you have, uh, I came across this framework to kind of help understand those different ways of talking about salvation. As you look at what the New Testament has to say, you, you may wind up, and this is not a perfect framework by any means, but you may wind up with something like this. We have been saved, 
we are being saved, and we will be saved. Does that, does that sound familiar to any of you guys? Yeah. Great. Uh, these are three critical components. They're all linked together, but they don't all mean the same thing necessarily. Essentially, um, <clears throat> these parts address the forgiveness of sins, the ongoing process of being made holy and perfect and new, uh, and the, the future expectation that we will be united with God forever. Sometimes we use big, theologically rich words like justification, sanctification, glorification. I get the sense that that's familiar as well. Um, now, that's probably not, like I said, the, the most perfect way of understanding what salvation fully is, what it fully means, but I think it gives us at least something of an of a idea that we can wrap our heads around that hopefully uh, helps us to think of, of it as something bigger than maybe we initially understood it to be, certainly than I initially would have thought of it as, because what, while the Bible seems to talk about those three components, we've been forgiven, we're being made new, we will be uh, made perfect someday. While those ideas are pretty clear, I think, back when I was having this conversation with my friend about what does it mean to be saved, uh, I tended to talk about the following components of salvation. Are you guys ready? First one, my sins have been forgiven. The second one is, well, there really isn't a second one at all. Um, being saved means my sins have been forgiven, so I'm now in right standing with God, period. That's, that was kind of the extent of my understanding and, and what I thought of it. And if we want to, maybe we sort of merge that with kind of the future idea of being with God forever. So now because of, of that forgiveness, uh, I don't suffer the eternal consequences of those sins, but rather I get to leave earth one day and go to heaven. That's being saved. I've been saved from sin and death. I've been saved from hell. Does that sound familiar to you guys at all? Is that something, am I alone in, in thinking that much of my life, if someone had just said, what's being saved? That's probably what comes to my mind, just based on the kind of the evangelical tradition that I'm from. I think that's a pretty limited definition and understanding of what it means to be saved, um, but I suspect most of us have had that definition presented to us at times. In fact, I imagine many of us have probably presented that definition uh, at times. And it's obviously based in truth. Nothing is more clear in Scripture than our need for forgiveness, for the reconciliation of humanity back to God, and it's, it's clear that it's something we can't do on our own. So I'm not necessarily saying it's a wrong definition, but it is very incomplete. And it sometimes leads to a faith, and I think we've probably all seen this, it leads to a faith where a person prays a prayer, says the right words to get that forgiveness imparted to them, and then obviously we hope that they do good things and they go to church and they don't... Uh, cheat and they don't sleep around and they don't steal. We hope all of that, but regardless of whether that happens or not, we understand they're going to be in heaven someday because they've been saved, right? Sometimes we lean so heavily on the idea of salvation where we don't do anything at all, we have nothing to do with it, that, uh, well, we stop doing anything at all. It's sort of a nothing I do matters, Jesus, take the wheel. What, is, what difference does it make? And that's a definition that this morning I would like for us to uh, try to move, not move on from, but move beyond or expand on. Uh, I want us to consider salvation as something much larger than just sort of an appeal to, uh, basically an appeal to selfishness. You know, uh, you don't want to go to that nasty hell place, do you? you, you don't you want to go to paradise? Come on, let's, let's get saved. Come on. I'd like us to broaden our field of view a little bit beyond that. And I particularly think it's important for us to look at salvation as something happening here and now today that we are currently living in. I believe Jesus has a lot to say about salvation here and now, about what it means, about who it's for, 
about how it happens and about what it requires of us. There are dozens of stories we can look at uh, to explore that a little bit more, but there's one in particular I want to focus on today, and I'll get to the reasons uh, about that in a minute. I want to take a look at Mark chapter 10. If you guys have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. Mark chapter 10, this is going to be familiar. Verses 17 through 31. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Mark 10, verse 17, it says, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. The he here is is Jesus. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, I'm sure you've come across that story. You've probably heard a sermon about it, or 20 sermons about it. Um, And I want to look at it for a couple reasons today. First thing to consider is what's what's Mark really talking about here? Well, I want to look at several phrases that are used. Uh, In verse 17, the, the rich man asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life, That's keep that in mind. Uh, in verse 23 and, and several times after that, Jesus talks about how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So, Kingdom of God, we have eternal life, kingdom of God. And then in verse 26, the disciples are amazed and they say, well, who can be saved? So we have eternal life, kingdom of God, saved. I would suggest to you that in this instance, those three terms are used pretty interchangeably here. Uh, The rich man asks for eternal life. Jesus later says it's hard for him to inherit the kingdom of God, Uh, and the disciples were seemingly astonished that this guy wasn't saved. I think those phrases are used synonymously. Not that that's a very provocative idea. Um, I think it's pretty straightforward. So part of the obvious reason I want to look at this section of scripture is that we're talking in some way about salvation as we go through this entire passage. And as we get started with it, I want to pay particular attention to the disciples' question about who could even be saved, because they seem pretty marveled that Jesus 
didn't save this guy. I think we tend to approach this young man with uh, not a lot of admiration or respect, and I think that says an awful lot about how we like to view the point of this story. Maybe we assume that this guy was in love with prestige and notoriety, and he was just looking to get more of that for himself. He was full of himself. He saw that maybe earning favor with this Jesus fellow who was really popular and well-known and beloved, maybe earning favor with this guy was a way to gain even more influence and even more power. That could be. Maybe we look down on him for his obvious greed. We know what the Bible says about being rich. We know that we certainly aren't rich ourselves, and so we see this young man get called out for his greed, and maybe this is a little bit cynical, but I think uh, it's possible. We almost take a little bit of delight in feeling pity for this guy that he's so attached to his wealth that he walks away from Jesus, and it's a good thing that we are not the same way. And there may be some truth to those things. In fact, there probably is some uh, mixed in there. But I would suggest the most common way we view this rich young ruler, the most typical way we sort of dismiss him is this, and I think this is very important. We see him as a sort of stand-in for the, the typical cliched person who thinks they can be good enough to go to heaven. Isn't that a character that we all hear about in hypothetical sermon illustrations uh, and in church dramas? We see the guy who thinks he can be good enough to go to heaven, right? And in fairness, that's a character we see in the Bible. It's a character we see in the New Testament, and it's a character many of us maybe have been or have in our lives. But I think that's what we kind of place on this guy. So here we have this guy who clearly thinks he's good at following God's law, right? He says, I've kept all these things from my youth. And I think we kind of chuckle and roll our eyes at that. And he clearly thinks that he can do something to earn his way into heaven, right? Or so we think. He even asks, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And again, those of us who know better uh, chuckle and roll our eyes because we know that's not how eternal life works. And Jesus has no time for that. And you know what? If we only view salvation as the forgiveness of our sins, as our way to get our names uh, sort of on heaven's reservation list, then that actually makes a whole lot of sense here. But the thing is, I don't really believe that's what's happening in this story. I think this rich young ruler was asking a question, whether he really even knew it or not, I think he was asking a question much, much deeper than we give him credit for. And I think Jesus gives a deeper answer than maybe we really are comfortable with him giving. It seems pretty clear to me that Jesus was talking about salvation with this ruler, and it seems pretty clear that he was not, or I'm sorry, that he was talking about something besides how does this guy get his sins forgiven, to put him back into right standing with God. If Jesus was just telling this guy, hey, you can never do enough to earn good favor from God, I think he might have answered him maybe a little bit differently. Now, to be fair, Jesus was often misunderstood and uh, sometimes could even be a little bit cryptic in his words in the gospel, so it's not like this would be the first time he ever answered a question in, a, in an unexpected way. But again, I don't think that's what's happening here. I'm going to give this guy maybe the benefit of the doubt, this rich young ruler. Maybe I shouldn't, but, but I'm going to. I'm going to suggest that he was genuinely a law-abiding Jew. He seemed to have a pretty good knowledge of what, it, what he was talking about when it came to the law, right? And yet he seemed to know there was something more that was happening in the world around him. And he identified something special in Jesus, something that compelled him to come up to him and fall on his knees in front of him in the presence of so many people. That doesn't really sound like someone obsessed with his own power and his own position. He kind of even seems to identify Jesus as God 
or as something having to do with God at the very least. He calls Jesus good, and when Jesus pushes back a little bit on that and says, hey, only God is good, this guy doesn't have anything to say about it. He doesn't seem to have any problem with it. In fact, he clearly recognizes that Jesus holds the keys to eternal life. You know what? This is almost sounding like a conversion experience, isn't it? It's maybe not identical, but it has a lot of the markings of one. Let's imagine a guy here today who respects God's morality, who recognizes that there's something more to life and to faith than just following rules. Someone who maybe hears a sermon about Jesus, he comes running down to the front, he falls on his knees, and he cries out in front of all of us, Jesus, Lord, I I want to keep your commands. I want to inherit your eternal life. I imagine that if we saw that today, we would be rejoicing over another soul added to the flock. But what happens in Mark 10? Jesus doesn't save this man. And the disciples marvel at the fact that he doesn't. What in the world is that about? That is really inconvenient to read about. Those of us who are familiar with other times that Jesus uh, seems to interact with a truth seeker, you might say, uh, we might expect him to respond a little differently here when he's asked, what must I do to be saved? Maybe we think uh, Jesus should be saying, and see if any of these responses sound familiar. Maybe we think he should say, this is the work of the Lord, that you believe in him whom he sent. Maybe we think he should say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Maybe when someone asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We think he should say, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Maybe we just think he should say, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Well, in fact, he does say that, doesn't he? But he waits to say it until after the guy walks away. So it's almost like either Jesus is kind of playing games with this poor man's soul. Uh, I can almost picture him. This is very irreverent, but that's okay. You don't have to have me back. I almost picture him telling the disciples that, uh, you know what, guys? It's only possible with God to be saved. And they're like, oh, great. Do you want us to go get that guy and tell him? And Jesus says, Nah, he's okay. And they're like, yeah, but he seemed like really curious about this, didn't he? Nah, what are you going to do? Shouldn't have been rich, I guess. Either that's what's happening here, or we're talking about something beyond our typical understanding of eternal life, of the kingdom of God that Jesus and this man were perhaps talking about. So here's the point. I believe, whether he knew it or not, the rich young ruler was asking Jesus something beyond just, how do I get my sins forgiven so I can go to heaven when I die? I think he was asking, what does eternal life look like? What does salvation look like? What is life like in the kingdom of God? And Jesus was very clear with his answer. Give away all that you have. I think this is um, something that that you guys have heard a lot lately. I I listened to one of Brian's sermons from a few weeks ago and... um, He hit it out of the park. Give away all that you have. Unless we think that Jesus was talking about material possessions only because this guy was rich, and and that is part of it. Um, But he continues talking with his disciples after the man leaves. Uh, And he clarifies to them that those who inherit eternal life are the ones who leave their homes, their families, their farms for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of each other. Now, initially, it's a bit of a head-scratcher when we read that... uh, any of us who leave those things behind for the sake of the gospel will receive a hundred times more in return in this life 
that doesn't seem to make any sense. That seems almost like a, an ugly cousin to health and wealth gospel or something like that. But consider this. In a heavily persecuted church, and that's who Mark's initial audience would have been, in a heavily persecuted church, it was so incredibly important that they take care of each other. So what happens if you belong to a church of, let's just say, 100 people, 101 people, and every one of you gives away everything you have for one another? What happens when, when you do that? You get 100 more of those things in return. I gave up my home to all of you, but you make your home available, every one of you, to me as well. And I believe that's the central message here. I believe this is a story that encourages us to see salvation as something we actively participate in now. And as much as we throw around the negative term works-based salvation, I want to be careful here, but I think this is one uh, that is absolutely tied to our actions, to our works. But not just our, our work of, of following pious rules, don't smoke, don't, don't cheat, don't watch R-rated films, whatever. This is about the work of giving up everything we have in service to each other. This is what it means to continue to be saved, to live in your salvation. This is what it means to live out eternal life. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. This is an invitation to not just celebrate the free gift of eternal life, but to understand the work required once that gift is opened. That's something we see all the time in life, isn't it? I think uh, we celebrate something great arriving, and then we quickly realize there's a lot of work that is attached to this, right? Uh, hey, I got into that school that has such a low acceptance rate. Isn't that amazing? I got accepted. Oh, yeah, good for you. Good for you. That's, that's exciting. The work is just beginning. Are you going to do it? I finally got the job I wanted. I've been applying and applying and applying, and I finally got this. Hey, way to go. That's great. Now your work is just beginning. Are you going to do it? I finally got married. Eh, who would have thought, right? Look at me. But I finally got married. Hey, congratulations. That's wonderful. The work has just begun. Are you going to do it? Love you, babe. <laughs> She's been working for a long time. We finally have a family. We've been trying for such a long time, and, and we're finally going to have a baby. Oh, my gosh. That is beautiful and amazing and wonderful. The work is just beginning. Good heavens. Hey, man. I went to church last night, and I went down front for an altar call, and I got saved. Wow. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That is the greatest news I could ever hear. Your family has been waiting years and years to hear you say that, and I rejoice with you. The work has just begun. Are you going to do it? Our theme verse for today is Matthew 16, 24. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it to you. You can go there if you want, I guess. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He goes on to say that whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. Deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life, follow Jesus. That sounds like hard work. These are ideas that are echoed all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the Gospels, including later in Mark 10, after the story we just looked at. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. When we see salvation as simply getting something amazing, and we just celebrate the thing that we get. It impacts the way I think that we approach and understand Scripture. And I'll give you an example. We read a passage like Philippians 2, which is um, 
I won't go there, but um, it's where Paul is writing about Jesus, and he says, um, he, though he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, something to be grasped. And so he emptied himself, and he humbled himself, and he became a man, and then he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, God raised him up and, and gave him the name above every other name, that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we read a passage like that, and if we have an understanding of salvation as, as only uh, the gift that we receive, we see the amazing, unspeakable, unimaginable ways that Jesus shows his love for us, and we say things like, wow, he did it all for me. Even if I was the only one who would have ever believed, he would have done it for me. And I'm not pushing back against that. Maybe a little. <laughs> but when we begin to understand salvation as a continuous call to action, we realize that Paul isn't just writing some sort of final theological treatise. He's explaining to the church at Philippi that they should, and he says this, have this same attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, and so on and so on. He's telling them, Jesus is like this. You be like that too. Give up everything you are, everything you have, even to the point of death, to demonstrate love for one another. When we begin to understand the necessity of denying ourselves, carrying our cross, we begin to understand that the cross isn't just the means of our great victory over the consequences of sin. The cross is an invitation, an invitation to join Christ and Him crucified, to give up everything we have for the sake of Him and for the sake of one another, to give up our plans, to give up our time, our resources, our ambitions, our loves, our energy, our attention, to give up our lives. This is the way of Jesus. It's the way of the kingdom of God. It's the way of eternal life. This is salvation, and it's absolutely something we are called to live out right here and right now. The title of this sermon is Heaven on Earth, and I can't think um, of many things that have more to do with, with salvation than that concept, honestly. Most of us in this room, I assume, maybe I shouldn't assume, but most of us, I think if we're here, can say we've already been saved. We've already dealt with that part. And as a result, most of us in this room live in anticipation of the future when we will be saved. Things will be perfect. In the meantime, though, uh, as long as we are around on this earth, we are called to live out our salvation right now. This means we don't just wait around for Jesus' kingdom to come. We don't just wait around for the time when he, we can leave earth and go to heaven. To continue being saved means to live out heaven on earth right now. Let me say that again. This is not about leaving earth and going to heaven, although that is a part of it, and it is a wonderful part of it. But to continue being saved means to live out heaven on earth right now. Jesus' kingdom is not just some far-off place that we can't touch or see. It's here among us. It is us. And he says it is a kingdom of sacrifice, of selflessness, of service, and of love for one another. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The reason we looked at the rich young ruler today isn't just because it teaches us something about salvation, I believe. Um, it's also because it shows us something about our willingness to respond to that and participate in it. As we talk about inheriting eternal life, I have kind of an analogy. I came up with this on my own, so buckle up. It might be terrible. I don't know. Um, but I picture a massive city 
And by the way, it's just a metaphor, so don't overthink it. It will fall apart if you go too far down the road. I picture a massive city that stretches on as far as we can see in any direction. And in the middle of this city is a wall that separates it in two. On one side of the wall is where we are all born. It's where most people uh, live and many people stay. It's a place of brokenness, of temporary pleasures, vanity, self-indulgence, a lack of satisfaction, purposelessness, and an unending desire to get more and more of what feels good, no matter the cost. It is a place, a bad place to be, and we'll call it the city of despair, let's say. If I was writing a, a novel, that's what I'd call it. On the other side of the wall is the kingdom of God. And if we want to use kind of the obvious analogy here, we'll say that the wall is called sin. Now, not everyone in the city is aware that there's something on the other side of the wall. And even many who seem to suspect there is realize, you know, there's really no way for us to just cross over this wall. But just as the situation seems to be hopeless, a doorway appears. We'll call this door the sacrifice of Jesus, let's say. Now, let's get really serious with this metaphor and say that uh, the door is framed with wood from the cross. And it opens freely to all who will walk through it. The people who walk through it embrace a life of sacrifice. They all carry a cross for one another. And something interesting happens. They end up going back and live in the city of despair, but they bring the cross with them. They no longer pursue the temporary pleasures and the good feelings they did before. And oftentimes, they try to bring others to the doorway and convince them to go in. Now, just like the wall, not everyone who sees the door acknowledges its existence, and even some who do just don't seem to care very much. But there are always people who want to know what's on the other side, who want to know if maybe they can walk through as well. And I believe our rich young ruler was one of those people. I think he was generally a success, such as we might define it in this city of despair. It's a silly name, I know. but, um, But I think he also knew there was something on the other side of the wall, and he wanted to be over there. And not only that, but he found the door. I don't know if somebody told him about it or if he just found it on his own. He recognized what the door did, and he seemed, in a sense, to almost push on the door. Oh, he's so close. But when he looked through and saw what was on the other side, when he saw the life of sacrifice, when he saw the cross he had to carry, he felt sad and walked away because he had so much to lose. And that leads me to a very critical question. I think we live in a Christian culture today that is all about the door. I think we spend our lives devoted to the door. We found entire schools and publishing companies to learn about and teach others about the door. We divide our communities based on how we understand the door. We study its features and we endlessly debate its functions. Is there a doorbell? Uh, Is there a mail slot? Does the door open from the outside or from the inside or from both? Can anyone go through the door or only just certain people? Uh, When the door was made, what exactly did the door go through? If God somehow made this door from himself, uh, did the door stop being God when it was made? Let's talk about that. Do Do we walk ourselves through the door, or does somebody reach through from the other side and pull us through the door? And many of us in this culture who don't uh, even consider these types of things still spend our lives devoted to the door. We sit around it on Sundays. We talk about it at small groups. We invite others to come and look at it. We sing songs about it. We read books about how to know it better. We find unspeakable comfort and reassurance in its existence because it is the means by which we may be rescued, saved, if you will, from the city of despair. 
But I sometimes wonder if, when we look through to the other side and see the cost of discipleship, the giving away of everything for the sake of others, the self-denial, the cross we have to carry, do we really want to walk through the door? Or do we feel sad and walk away because we too have so much to lose? Comfort, prestige, control, money, security, familiarity, status, our hopes, our ambitions, our plans, our lives. We have a lot to lose. I think sometimes we don't even maybe get sad and walk away. Uh, I think sometimes we've done such a good job of, of creating this focus on the door that we just go back and sit back down and, and think, well, this is good enough. Maybe someday I'll walk through. Guys, our sins were forgiven. Our doorway into the kingdom was opened. Our salvation was begun by what Jesus did on the cross. It was something we didn't earn or deserve, and he did it anyway. And now he invites us to live in his kingdom by denying ourselves, by climbing up there with him and giving up all that we have for his sake and for the sake of one another. The rich young ruler wouldn't do it. And because of that, I don't know that he ever walked into that eternal life. What about us? I shared a, a similar message to this once uh, down in Springfield. And I really wanted to close with a thoughtful question. And I think I said something like, you know, most of us in this room have already been saved. The question is, are we still being saved? Right? And that was a fine question for that day, based on how we understand being saved to be. But I don't think that's the question that I want to ask today, not of myself at least. I don't know about you guys, but I know how I feel about giving up my time, my energy, my ambitions, my wants, my resources, my comforts in the name of love for someone else. I'm pretty bad at it. I think a lot of the times I either run away from the calling of it or I just try to ignore it. And maybe, I won't get too into this, maybe sometimes we kind of figure out how to do that, and then life throws a curveball, circumstances change, and you have to relearn how to do it again, right? Has anybody had that experience? When you get things kind of figured out, something changes, and you have to re-figure out how to, how to do this whole thing. So here's what it is. If I've already been saved by the work that Jesus did up there on that thing, by now, but now, the reality of still being saved means I have to climb up there with him. Yeah, I don't think the question is, am I still being saved? The real question to me is, do I really even want to be? Or do I have too much to lose? And I think that's the question we should all be asking ourselves. Now, I want to clarify a few things before I wrap all this up. First, again, the wall thing is a metaphor, and it'll break down if we push too hard. This life we're talking about today is a process. None of us is perfect in this. Maybe we do want to um, pursue this salvation. Maybe we do try to put in the work. And that doesn't mean that we're never selfish or that we just instantly become like Christ in all of our actions. This is a daily practice, a daily habit, a daily decision to deny ourselves. And even with our greatest efforts, Jesus, as we read, indicates that with man, something like this really isn't possible. So while it is our work, it is God's work as well. And I take a lot of comfort in that because I am not capable of doing it on my own. Also, I want to acknowledge that um, of all the people I've known who do seem to embody that selflessness and that willingness to give up uh, of themselves and of their time for one another, many of them are right here in this room today. Um, so this is not meant to be a, you guys, are, you don't get it at, at all. Um, and in fact, in the last several weeks um, since my, my sister passed away, I have been flooded by that kind of love and that kind of um, 
thoughtfulness and that kind of selflessness. And it is amazing. And I believe it is the kingdom of God um, shown up in my life. And I'm very grateful for it. So uh, this is not meant to be critical. This is meant to be an invitation to say, do we want to keep doing this thing or not? I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here in a minute. I had a lot more to say, but um, I just want to encourage you with this. I, uh, I, I was, our church in Springfield, we went through a couple times of transition. We went through a couple times of uh, pastors leaving for various reasons. Neither, none of them were, were really particularly bad. But I saw over the life of that church um, some challenges come up and some difficulties arise. And uh, by the end of everything, I was in a, a leadership position and I saw how difficult it was uh, and how challenging it can be to keep things going. And so first of all, I want to commend uh, your elders and your staff and your, your search committee and everybody who, who puts forth effort, really probably most every one of you, to keep this thing going and to support each other and to encourage each other, to pray for each other. Um, that's amazing. I was thinking about this. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you how, how it all wound up. Our church in Springfield ended up, ended up shutting its doors. We had got to a point where we, there just wasn't enough um, consensus on what needed to be done, and that's kind of what happened. And that was hard. Looking back on it, God's grace was all over the whole thing, and it was fine, and everybody's moved on to communities of their own, and, and everything's been, been good. Um, but I was talking about that with uh, a gentleman I was interviewing for a, a church position at a place out in Colorado, just a minor uh, staff role out there. And he asked me about that. We were talking about it, and he asked, well, Josh, what did you learn from that experience? And I thought, oh, I was supposed to learn something? Shoot. And I kind of hemmed and hawed, and I, I think I said something about communication is vital, um, which is awesome to see the communication that's happening here this morning. Man, that's important. Um, and that's a fine answer. But as I've thought about it since then, um, and just, I, I, they didn't offer me the job, by the way. So, kids, be prepared for your interviews if you ever get one. Um, as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? What I learned is I would want to tell everybody in that church every day that everything I have is, is for them. And I would invite them always to consider what it means to continue being saved, to consider what it means to belong to the kingdom of God, to consider what it means to live out eternal life, to give up everything we have in the name of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, to the glory of the Father, to give it all for one another. And I think that no matter what happens, um, no matter what, what Jerry does or doesn't do, uh, no matter what ministries exist or don't exist at this place, no matter what um, growth happens or doesn't happen, if this is a place where someone walks in, a stranger walks in and sees a group of people who oftentimes have very little, maybe even nothing in common, a group of people who, who maybe disagree on things, but a group of people who are willing to say, I love you so much that I will give up everything I have for you. I will give up my time, my energy, my wants, my desires, my thoughts, my hopes, my, my finances, my life. I will give it up for you because that's what Christ does for me. If this is a church where that's happening, that's where the kingdom of God is. And people will see that and people will know that. And I, guys, I believe this is a church where that's happening. So, let me just encourage you um, to don't stop and to, to keep doing it more and more. If you are somebody who um, hears these kinds of things and thinks, 
boy, I hope she's listening. You know, or I hope he's listening to that. I would encourage you, and I know that's probably the case because I'm that guy a lot of times. I hear a good sermon like, more. I hope you're paying attention. Um, I would encourage you to, to look at yourself and say, am I really denying myself? If you are a person who says, you know what, the ends justify the means. This is the, this is the thing that needs to happen at this place and at this time. Um, and in order to get that, I'm going to do whatever it takes. If, if that's your outlook, you better reconsider who you're following and, and how you're doing it and how you love one another. The good news is I don't think there's a lot of that here.